If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Ephesians 5 as we continue our our series in that letter this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find this printed in the bulletin. Uh, We're going to read a a little longer passage today, and uh, there's a lot in it. I think uh, even after the the reading of Scripture, you're going to feel maybe a little overwhelmed by all the different topics that are here today. Uh, But I, I hope you'll listen and notice as we read, there's one common theme throughout the whole thing. It's the theme of walking, walking. I mean, no doubt you've heard that idea that the Christian life is a walk. Uh, It's almost like a cliche now, but hopefully we can rescue it from its clicheness and and give you this morning a biblical understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus, okay? Uh, Let's read together, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's Word. I told you there was a lot in there. And even to hear that scripture read might feel overwhelming to you, you know, maybe not just in terms of all the topics that it deals with, but even some of the hard, heavy-hitting things that it says about being a Christian and what belongs and what doesn't belong in being a Christian. Let me help you think about it this morning. When's the last time you went hiking? Uh, Some of y'all might have to dig deep back into your history. To think about that, uh, others may, may be sooner. For me, it just so happens that this past spring break, my family and I got a chance to go up to 
North Carolina to stay at our denomination's retreat center for a few days, and we hiked a couple different times when we were there. Uh, One of the hikes we did, and all the kids went with us, every one of them, even Xander, made it all the way through. It was a four-hour hike. I was impressed by our kids' you know, endurance. And one of the things you know, that I remembered about hiking is how difficult it can be, especially in the mountains, because you're going up. And also, you know, time of year, it was springtime, and so the, the rivers and the creeks were a little bit swollen, and some of the bridges to get across had been kind of washed away. And so there were a couple of times we had to take the shoes off, roll up the pants, and actually like ford the river. I felt like a true pioneer out there, and the kids, you know, really got a lot out of it. But one of the other things I noticed was how important it is to have a well-marked trail, Uh, especially during the springtime, because things are starting to come back, and, you know, the the trails can look a little overgrown, and sometimes, don't y'all know, it's hard to tell the trail from the woods. And there were a few times where we took off on what we thought was a trail for a little while, only to realize we missed it. Because in certain places, it wasn't as well marked. In other places, it was marked. I mean, along the way, you had, it was color-coded out there where we were. And so you had a little map, and there was a red trail and a blue trail and a green trail. And you, as long as you had enough markings along the way, every step of the way, you knew that you were on the right trail. Or maybe this is the place where you peel off and hit the green trail to get to where you want to go. Well, Paul loves, especially for some reason to these Ephesian Christians, he loves to talk about the Christian life like a hike. Uh, Five times in the letter he says it this way. Five times. He says at the beginning, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. Uh, And then he says that uh, we should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We saw that already. And that we should walk uh, in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We saw that. And then this morning, three times, if you look at the passage we read, three different times he talks about walking. But this passage gives us the following good news. If the Christian life is a hike that we must hike, it is nevertheless on a well-marked trail. And so look at the passage. There in verse 2, he says, we are to walk in love. The path we walk in is a path marked with love every step of the way. Well marked. And then if you'll look at uh, verse 8, uh, is it 8? It's, or 9, excuse me, it says we're to walk, or excuse me, it is 8. We're to walk as children of light. So the trail we're to walk on is a trail filled with light. And then lastly, he says in verse uh, 15, We're to walk carefully as those who are wise. The trail we walk is a trail marked with wisdom. And if you'll notice, each of those three things is an attribute of God himself. God is love. God is light. God is wisdom. What does that mean? That means the the path that we're called to walk as Christians is a path we walk marked by the very character of God himself, which means it's well marked and it can't change. The markers don't get moved. And so we never have to worry about getting lost or off the trail if we stay in step with the character of our maker. So if you look at your bulletin, the simple outline this morning is just of those three things. We're going to talk about walking in love, walking as children of light, and walking as those who are wise, walking in wisdom. Let's think about it. First of all, walking in love. There in verses 1 to 2, 
Paul makes it very clear that the trail is marked by love, but it's not first by our love. It's marked first by God's love. A Christian is called to walk in their own love, right? We, we are definitely called to love God and to love other people. But the critical thing about the Christian walk is that the trail of love has already been blazed by one who's better at love than you are. That's why he says in verse 1, Be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, the reason why I ought to want to love you and why you ought to want to love me and each other and why we ought to want to love God is because God has first loved us. He has, he's the one who's made the trail through the wilderness of hate in this world, a trail paved every step of the way with love and marked along the way. The love of God comes down into us, and, and we become aware of his love. We embrace his love. And as a result of that, our love begins to grow and bubble up out of it. In fact, he, he describes it as a child who wants to imitate a good father. A child wanting to be like dad. That's the way the Christian is. And how is that possible? Well, why do people want to be like their dads? Well, they want to be, want to be like their dads because their dads have loved them. Their dads have treated them well. They, are, they know themselves to be beloved children. And there's something about their fathers that they admire, that they hold in high regard because, for a big reason why, is because they have felt the love of their dad, even in hard ways, sometimes in hard ways, but in all ways they've known their father loves them. Well, no earthly father is exactly perfect like that to where we want to imitate everything about him. No, no earthly father is like that. But the heavenly father is such, so good at love that a Christian never has a reason not to want to imitate God. In fact, in verse 2, look at how he says God expressed his love. And this is not uh, revolutionary in, in terms of, uh, you've, you, I know you've heard this before, but it's important to revisit it all the time. The demonstration of the love of God the Father was the sending of the Son and the work that Jesus the Son did. And that's basic gospel, isn't it? But notice what Jesus did to love us. He gave himself up for us. How big is that love? I guarantee you the list of people that you would give your life up for is very, very small. Isn't it? It may be non-existent, that list. But even if it exists, it's a tiny little list. But for Jesus, because his love is so expansive, it was a list beyond our ability to number this morning. It was every single one of the people of God, all of which were sinners, but yet all of which, undeserved, had received the love of God in eternity. Jesus came into this world to die for them, to lay down his life for them. He gave himself up for us. But not only that, Jesus gave himself to God in love in doing it. And so it says that Jesus is a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so love in Jesus' life went both directions. It went out towards us as he laid on his life, but it also went up to God. Because in giving his life, he was giving himself for the Father. He was, he was a sacrifice. Uh, he was the one who substituted himself in our place so that we could then become a sweet-smelling savor to God, which we aren't in ourselves. Don't you know it this morning? To get into the presence of a holy God, you've got to have credentials. 
Everybody follow me there? You've got to have credentials. You've got to produce your credentials. The Bible asks in Psalm 15, Who will dwell in your holy temple, Lord? Who can go up to the mountain and dwell with you there? And then it goes on basically to list the perfect person. He doesn't lie. He never worships idols. He, you know, he always keeps his commitments. He's pure in heart. There's nothing wrong with him or her. And you read that and you think, wow, God's house is lonely. If that's the only people that can go there. But that's not the story of the Bible. God's house is not lonely because Jesus Christ is that one described in Psalm 15. And he was that for us and he yielded that perfect life to the Father so that you and I could come to God through his credential. So that we could present the credentials of Jesus to come to God. Now think about it this morning. If your job of walking on a trail marked with love is hard, imagine having that kind of love as the source of your strength to draw on in loving people and in loving God. I mean, think about it this way. If you draw from a limited source, your ability to withdraw is, everybody say it, limited. In fact, the smaller it is, the more limited your ability to withdraw is. We read this week, maybe you read in the news about Lake Powell in California. It's been on the news this week. It's one of the main sources of water for the state of California, drinking water and, and the rest. And it is running dry because they're drawing more out of it than it's going into it. It's a limited source and they're tapping it too much. Well, the love of God in Christ for you is not like Lake Powell. In fact, the more you draw, the more you realize there is. It is like a spring, not a lake. The more you take, the more it keeps bubbling back up. And so you and I can learn how to walk in love because we are backed by a love far beyond our wildest imaginations. Beyond our wildest dreams. That the Son of God, the Holy Son of God, would give himself up for us and would offer himself a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God so that you and I could have credentials. To be beloved children, as it says in verse 1. And so, let me just ask you this question. Where are you having a hard time loving in your Christian life? Is there any area where you're having a hard time loving this morning? You having a hard time loving God, maybe? Maybe sometimes it's very hard to get the feelings or get whatever that is you feel like you've got to have to love God. It's hard to work that up. It can be frustrating. Maybe there's a person or persons that you're having a really hard time loving. Here's my, here's my follow-up question. Do you know and are you willing this morning to begin to know more how much it is God has loved you first? Are you willing to look up as you walk that trail and see marked upon the trees the red blood of Jesus' sacrifice for you? And are you willing to draw on that? When you read about love in the Bible, it is too hard for you. Amen? It's too hard for you. If you don't believe me, go this afternoon and read 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go read it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love endures all things. Love rejoices in the truth. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. How many of us are still standing? 
No. I mean, that, that, is, that even just sounds exhausting to me, <laughs> that list. And yet to know every step I take with God in this life is a step taken underneath Christ's credential and not mine. It begins to make the prospect of loving God and loving others a little lighter. Which is why Jesus says, my burden, take it upon you because it's easy. My burden is light. Because it's lightened by the burden that I already carried for you. When the Bible says we walk in love, it doesn't just mean we're to love other people and to love God. It does mean that, but it means also, and it means first, we're to walk in His love for us, which is why it makes such a big deal about that in verses 1 and 2. Do you know He loves you this morning? Do you know God loves you this morning? Do you know the extent to which He has loved you? Do you understand that even if you're on day 1,000 of your Christian life, you are still taking every step by the credential of Jesus just like you were on day one? And guess what? Even when you go to heaven and we're on day a million, worshiping God, you will still be in heaven only on Christ's credential. Wow. What love. Amen? All right, let's go to the second thing. We're to walk as children of the light. There in verses 3 through 14, the biggest section of the passage, Paul wants to speak to us about how God is light, and those who walk in him walk as children of light. Now, light contrasts with what? Darkness. And you can see it all the way through the passage. Paul is saying, you once were darkness, but now you are light. That's in verse 7. And so you should walk as the children of the light. Uh, The fruit of the light is what is good and right and true, verse 9. But the unfruitful works of darkness, verse 11, are things that make people ashamed, verse 12. There's this big difference between daylight and night darkness. And Paul is also saying there are certain activities that are appropriate to the one time that are not appropriate or even possible to the other. All right, let me ask you kids in the room, think about this. Can you stargaze in the middle of the day? Can you do that? Nope. Can you sunbathe at midnight? No. No. Why? Because the sun's not out. Stars aren't out, right? I mean, daytime has certain activities that you can only do in the daytime. Isn't that right? Nighttime has certain activities that you can only do at night. If I went out right now and tried to stargaze, we would say it's improper. (laughs) It's out of place. Something's probably wrong with me. If I went out and laid out at midnight to get the tan, not only would it not work, but it would be improper and out of place, wouldn't it? And notice how many times Paul says in verses 3 through 14, it is improper, it is out of place, it is shameful, it is not what we're supposed to do anymore. Because once you were dark, but when a person comes to Jesus, Christ himself shines upon them and they become light. See, the power of the light of God is so powerful that when it shines upon a person in grace, they themselves take on the quality of light and cease to be dark. That's the key, by the way, to understanding all those scary 
And, and there are some scary things that are said in this passage, right? Like, look at verse 5. Um, Nobody who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's scary. Let no one deceive you, verse 6, with empty words. Because of these things, the things we just listed, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Really scary. Um, if that is true, as we said earlier in, this, earlier in the service, if God should mark my iniquities, who could stand? And yet, here's the key to understanding this. Once you were those things, and I was those things, but now you are light in the Lord. There is a, this is so important to understand, there is a double blessing in the gospel of Jesus Christ when it comes to your sin. The first blessing is justification. And that means instead of being counted as a sinner, you are now, once and for all, counted as righteous because of Jesus Christ. That's the whole credential thing I was talking about. His credentials become your credentials. Your terrible credentials have been taken by him and have been nailed to the cross with him. So that it can truly be said of you, even if you look at that list of things and you say, well, man, I still have some of those things going on in my heart. I still have some of those things going on in my life. Yet, the good news of the gospel is, if you're truly united to Jesus, those things are no longer who you are. It may be how you feel from time to time. It may be the things you have to wrestle with and struggle with all the time. But it does not define who you are because you are, it says, light in the Lord now. You have been declared light. Now, the second blessing of the gospel is called sanctification, which Paul is also addressing. And nobody who is justified will not not be sanctified. Let me say it a better way. Everybody who's justified will be sanctified, right? Cut out the double negative there. (laughs) You can't be justified and then not be on the path to sanctification. And sanctification means the light is shining in you and it actually begins to turn you into light. So there's this blessing where God says, you are my children, you're no longer dark, you are light. That's who you are. You are who I say you are because you are under the credential of Jesus. And yet, here I am, I'm with you every step of the way. Your path is marked with my light. I am here to turn you into the light that I say you are. I'm here to make you more like Jesus, to take out of you those things that are the the fruitless works of darkness. The double blessing of the gospel Both of those are good news, amen? It's good news to be under the credential of Christ. Anybody with me there? Great news. It is also good news to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. But the first one's easy, the second one's hard. The first one wasn't easy for Jesus. To justify us was really hard for Jesus. But it's extraordinarily easy for us because God just bestows it on you. Boom! You are light. But sanctification? You've got to fight for it. You've got to battle for it. Paul's going to end this letter saying, put on the whole armor of God because Christian life is a battle. Buckle up. Buckle up. And one of the main reasons it's a battle is because of the sin in your heart and mind still, the sin that remains in us and in the world. If you don't feel like the Christian life's a battle... You're probably not fighting sin. And if you're not fighting sin, 
Maybe you aren't light in the Lord. Right? Those who are light in the Lord enter into the fray to battle against sin in their lives. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that there are certain things now, now that we've become daylight instead of nighttime, there are certain things that aren't proper anymore. The Christian shouldn't even, he says he shouldn't even name it. In fact, uh, you know, he focuses, you may have noticed, he focuses on sex. And it's not because that's the only sin there is. It's not because even necessarily it's the worst sin that there is. I think it's because it was a problem back then for these early Christians, and it's a good thing for us because it's a problem for us today. And so it would be good for us to think about more deeply, and you can go do this on your own, think about more deeply the way he addresses sexual sin. He says that it matters not just what you do. That, look at verse 3. Sexual immorality is what you do. It's, it, that means any sexual activity that God doesn't authorize. That's what that word means. But then he says impurity, which refers to what you say about sex. Which in verse 4, he, he deals with that. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, because those are out of place. Don't demean God's gift by making it seem dirty. That's a sin. It's wrong to do that. And then thirdly, even what you think about sex, God cares about. That's what he means by covetous there in verse 3, which he describes again in verse 5 as being idolatrous. To covet is to want anything that God hasn't given you. And that, of course, as Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5, is the root of all sexual sin. To want the thing in the heart that God has not given you or not authorized you to do or, or to be. Paul is saying, now that the light of Christ has shined on us, we ought to think different, we ought to speak different, and we ought to act different about sex. We shouldn't take that again to mean that that's the only thing he's concerned about. You could apply the same principle to any sin in life. Any sin. In fact, he did that last week, as we saw. Remember, he talked about stealing, and he said, the thief should no longer steal, but should work hard, so he has something to earn to give away to others. So he, he dealt with other sins there, but now he's focusing in on something that probably was a huge problem in the ancient world, especially in Ephesus, where the temple of the goddess Artemis was the most important site in the city, and that temple was known for temple prostitution. It was a part of the culture of that city to disregard God's voice when it came to sexuality. Now think about it. Is it a part of our city? Is it a part of our nation? Is it a part of our time to disregard what God says about so important a topic? I think it is. And so as Christians, let's, let's not go along with the, the, the world. Let's dare to be different. Amen? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor uh, in, in London in the 1800s, said, They are dead fish which are carried downstream. Living fish may go with the stream at times, but dead fish always do so. There are plenty of such in all waters, dead souls, so far as the truest life is concerned, and these are always drifting, drifting, drifting as the current takes them. Their first question in everything is, what is customary? What is everybody doing? God's law is of small account to them, but the unwritten rules of society have a power over them which they never think of resisting. 
And this morning I wonder, does that convict you at all? Does it convict me at all that we just go right along with what is acceptable, with the way that the world frames this? I mean, you know, certainly none of us are ignorant of the fact that most people think today that the Bible's teaching about these matters is backward, cruel, um, and, you know, well, positively medieval. (laughs) And to go back to them, most people think, is to be a bigot. But what I'm saying is, let's think more critically about the way the stream is flowing. Because actually, Christianity was the first and greatest sexual revolution. The 1960s was nothing. In fact, it's terrible compared to the sexual revolution that came when Paul wrote these words in Ephesus. Back then, a lot of, see, the narrative often goes like this, and, and you'll hear this all the time. Everybody in the Roman world or the ancient world was just so free. They did what they wanted to do. Nobody judged them. Everybody was just freewheeling. And then Christianity came and, whap, put everybody into line and into a box. And ever since then, everybody's been all repressed and, you know. And then finally the 60s happened. And everything got good again, right? That's the normal narrative, is it not? And yet, when you read about the Roman world in these matters, it is not that way. Uh, the Roman world was good on these matters for rich men, but for no one else. Rich men could do whatever they wanted in the Roman world. You're right about that. But the women, those who weren't high up on the social scale, they could not do whatever they wanted. They had to do whatever that guy wanted them to do. That was the, that was the sexual morals of the Roman world. When Christianity came, it said this, women, men, rich, poor, everybody, all the rules are the same because the rules aren't determined socially, they're determined theologically. They're not determined because of what you feel or think or what I feel and think. They're determined because of what God has said from times ancient. From the time he called this world into existence. And so, y'all, we ought to have the courage as Christians to go against the stream because the world has lost wisdom and light on these matters. It tells a fake story. And in place of that, we ought to believe wholeheartedly the true story. Of how Christianity came and said, women, you are dignified. Men, you are dignified even if you're not wealthy. Even if you're not powerful. Sex is something under the eyes of God. And what we do there, as what we do in everywhere else in our lives, must be done as if God is watching. It says there, try to discern, verse 10, what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the Bible's sexual ethic. As well as the Bible's ethic about everything. Try to do what's pleasing to God. Big deal, right? Let's look at the last thing, and we'll we'll be quick on this one, but we got to walk wisely. The the path is not only marked by love and marked by light, but it's also marked by wisdom. Uh, In verse 15 through 21, he describes this. He says, look carefully how you walk. Don't walk as foolish people, but as wise people. And the thing he zeroes in on is verse 16, making the best use of time. Okay, time is a gift. Uh, The time that we have in this world to walk with God and to develop as believers and as people is a gift from God. Every moment, every moment's precious. 
And foolishness wants to waste it. It's like being given a, being a big inheritance and then riding down the road with the windows down, throwing it out the, the window. That's foolishness. And yet we, we would never do that with money, but we do that with time, don't we? Like we roll the windows down and just, whoo, you know. We don't even think about how we use it. But here it says we ought to, literally the word make the best use is the word buy it all up. That's what the word means, to buy it up. Like somebody taking and buying all the stock available in a certain company. Buy it up. And take it and store it away and treasure it. Like use it really well. And he describes what that looks like. It's not being drunk with wine because that's a waste. That's what the word debauchery means. Being drunk with wine is a waste. By the way, being drunk on anything is a waste. Being drunk on your job and your ambition, that's a waste. Being drunk on your education is a waste. Being drunk even on your family is a waste. Uh, the, only thing, the only thing that's wise and not wasteful is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. And then in verse 19, he tells us beautifully what the filling of the Holy Spirit looks like. We don't have time to go into all the details, but there are three things. Singing, giving thanks... And submitting. Notice he doesn't say, hey, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will do crazy things. You will get all ecstatic and run wild and yell out and flip down the aisles. He doesn't say that, actually. No, actually, the Bible never says that. Contrary to popular opinion. You don't know the Holy Spirit because someone's acting crazy. You know the Holy Spirit because someone's singing the truth about God in their lives. Singing for two reasons. Singing to address other people. Singing to express the heart to God. A heart full of praise. Where the psalms, the hymns, and the spiritual songs of the Bible or about the Bible are the thing that's filling you with the Word. And letting the Word of God get in there and seep into your soul. Singing songs stick with you, doesn't it? That's why it says the Spirit loves singing. The Spirit loves to encourage God's people to sing. It's why the songs that we sing need to be songs that are good and need to be songs that are true about God and based on the Bible and not just random and not just based on things that we like just because we like them. But it needs to be really weighty and true because those songs are addressing each other. Are we addressing one another truly or falsely? And those things that we are singing are expressing the praise of our heart to God. And we don't want to say to God things that aren't true about him or aren't exactly accurate about him. Do you think God likes that? I don't think so. I don't like when people say wrong things about me and insist that it's right. And I don't think you do either. <laughs> Nobody likes that. The second thing is giving thanks. And he says giving thanks always. And for what? Some things? Everything. I mean, this is amazing. Uh, this, I don't have time to say enough about this, but it's when the Spirit comes, you know He comes because Thanksgiving becomes not just a day of the year. Thanksgiving becomes your whole life pattern. Theologians have thought about this. In fact, um, the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a, an early um, Reformation catechism, from Germany in the 1500s, 
it spends a whole section saying the whole Christian life is a life of gratitude. And it describes what gratitude looks like. And, and it covers every single thing in life. And it says everything gets shaped when we become thankful. It becomes different. That's what Paul is saying. You know someone's a Christian because thanksgiving is shaping their lives. And then lastly, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this one we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about. Because Paul takes this idea of submission and he starts to work it through all of our relationships starting in verse 22. Sometimes we think submission's a dirty word, but let's just suffice it to say this morning that submission simply means recognizing authority where God has given it. Recognizing authority where God has given it. Every one of us in different relationships have authority to submit to, and every one of us have some place where someone has to submit to us. And in all situations, the reason why we're able to submit as Christians is not because we're afraid of people or because we want to please people. That The reason why we submit is because we have reverence for Jesus. That is the reason. The reason you pay your taxes, the reason you respect civil leaders, the reason you respect church leaders, the reason you respect husbands, fathers, teachers, anybody in your life is because you reverence Jesus. More on that next week and in the week following. But think about it. If my life is 100% submitted to Jesus as my king, what big deal is it for me to pay my taxes to a lesser king because Jesus told me to? Right? You know what I'm saying? This is Paul's logic all the time. What's the big deal about obeying my parents? Jesus put them there, and I'm already submitted to Jesus. What's the big deal about that, right? This is how you know the Holy Spirit's filling you. By the way, the word for fill in verse 19 is the word for continuously being filled. It's, I mean, it's a weird way to say it in English, but it says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is not a one-time thing. This is a daily, be every day filled with the Spirit. And here's what it's going to look like. You're going to sing, you're going to give thanks, and you're going to submit. Because you know your life is under the Lordship of Christ. To come to Jesus, I heard someone say it this way this week and it stuck with me. Coming to Jesus is not about your little heart and Jesus being your encourager to make you feel what you want to feel when you want to feel it. Coming to Jesus is obeying a king. Who has a kingdom. And so you don't know the Holy Spirit because you got the feels. You know the Holy Spirit because you're submitting to the king of the universe. You've become light in the Lord. Amen?